0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, good morning. My name is Andrew Brown. I'm the director of youth ministry here at New Life. And today I'm going to be beginning a new series on the book of James called The Undivided Life. Now, just in case you are worried... Bob's series, Route 66. It will not be canceled. Uh, It'll be back next week. Bob's going to continue to go through the minor prophets, so you can come back and listen to more of that next week. But how this will work is that every time I'm given an opportunity to preach, I will be working through the next section of James. So today I'm going to be covering verses 1 through 12, and the next time I get to preach, whenever that might be, I'll pick it up in verse 13. Now, since I don't preach that often here, this might take three or four years to get through, Um, (laughs) but I I believe it's going to be worth the wait because I believe James has much to teach us about living an undivided life of allegiance to King Jesus. Now, if you've ever read the book of James, you know that it is a a hard book. Not so much hard to understand, but hard to apply and hard to really live out what's in James. It's full of these very challenging and difficult commands. And perhaps the most difficult of all is at the very beginning of the book. Uh, After the greeting, chapter 1, verse 2, this is what James says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now just think about that for a second. Think how difficult of a command that actually is. Count it all joy. It's almost like, is James being, is, is James being serious here? I mean, how can someone consider pain and suffering as joy? How can a trial... Be a time for rejoicing. This is an audacious command that James gives here. And it almost seems absurd. It almost seems crazy. But I don't think James has lost his mind. I don't think he's off his rocker. I think the truth is that James understands something about trials and suffering that we often miss. He sees them from a different perspective. In high school, I was required to read the book To Kill a Mockingbird. It's a great book if you've never read it. Um, I'd highly recommend it. It's about race relations in the South during the 1930s. Again, just a great book. But one line in that book has kind of always stuck with me for the rest of my life. Atticus Finch, he's one of the the main characters in that book. He's he's talking to his daughter. He's trying to tell her how to get along with other people. And, And this is what he says. If you can learn a simple trick, Scout you'll get along a lot better with all kinds of folks. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view. To understand why someone does what they do, we need to see things from their point of view. And when we do that, when we look at the world from their perspective, then our understanding can kind of completely change. Not just of that individual, but also of the world around us. Well, this morning I want to suggest that this little saying of Atticus Finch is also true of God. We really can't understand God and the world that he has ordained around us until we've considered things from his point of view. And I believe this is why James gives us such a radical command about finding joy in suffering. He can see trials as an opportunity for joy because he's considering them from God's perspective. Now, just to be 100% clear here, James is not commanding that we have nothing but joy in our suffering or that we should consider every aspect of a trial as enjoyable. I mean, we should and we will in this life feel deep sadness. We will feel deep grief in our suffering. I mean, Jesus himself felt that way, so clearly it's not wrong to feel that. But Alongside of our grief, alongside of the sadness, we also have an opportunity for joy, even if it's through tears. I think this is perhaps best expressed in Paul's words, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I think that's the idea that James is getting at, and that's the place he wants to help us get to. So today we're going to be doing that by, by looking at three ways that God sees our trials and therefore, three ways we also need to see our trials if we are going to count them as joy. So, if you have your Bibles, you, would you uh, pull out, pull them out, and flip over to the book of James? If you uh, didn't bring a Bible this morning, there should be one in one of the seats in front of you, and uh, the paperback Bibles in front of you. And then it's on page 586. We'll flip over there, James, chapter one. We please rise now for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read James 1 1 through 12. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your spirit now to teach us. Lord, I pray that you would do things in our hearts that only you can do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the first thing to notice here in the book of James is who he is writing to. Look at verse 1. Now I did that one thing where you go backwards. Uh, Look at verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. So James is writing to these 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now if you're not familiar with what that is, the dispersion is a term that literally means scattering and it originally referred to the exiles, the exile Um, of the Jews from their homeland. kind of. Bob's been talking about that the last few weeks. But eventually this term would be applied to early Jewish Christians who were driven out of Jerusalem for their faith in Jesus. You can find that in the book of Acts right after Stephen is stoned. This is when this dispersion happened. But I think it's important for us to take note of that, this audience that James is writing to, because it shows us that James isn't writing to a group of people who are unfamiliar with suffering. These people were facing intense persecution. They had fled from their homeland because they had been slandered, they had been mistreated, they had been robbed of their possessions, some of them dragged into court, and some of them even killed for their faith. So when James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, his readers knew what that meant. And while our trials today, they might be different than those original Christians, I think we know what James means as well. I assume everyone in this room is going through some sort of trial at this moment. Something in your life that is causing you hardship, causing you difficulty, causing you grief. For some of you, that trial is incredibly painful and is unlike anything you've ever experienced in this life before. For others of you, the trial is is relatively minor. It's it's not a huge deal, but it's still a hardship that you're going through. Trials and suffering are something we all experience because all of us live in a broken and sinful world. And I think that's why James says trials of various kinds. It's like he's intentionally including all sorts of different kinds of trials in his command to count it all joy. It's not just when you suffer for Jesus, it's all suffering. All trials are to be counted as joy. But you know, that's not something that comes automatically. And that's not something that happens naturally. It's something you must do. You must count them as joy. You must make a conscious decision to look at your trials from a different perspective to see them as God sees them and so the first way God sees our trials is God sees our trials as a time to purify our faith God sees our trials as a time to purify our faith look at uh, two through four again count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the first thing here that we see is that God uses trials and suffering to test our faith. Now it doesn't mean that God's in heaven saying... I wonder if Andrew's a Christian. I wonder if he has real faith. I better give him a test to find out or n- whether or not he is a believer. That's not what's going on here. The Bible tells us the Lord knows those who are his own. So James is not talking here about a test like that you get at school. It's a different kind of test. The idea is rather like testing your metal. You know, if you have gold or silver... You put that into the fire and the fire will burn away all imperfections and impurity. So this kind of test that James is talking about is not to find out if someone has faith, but rather to purify the faith that they already have. And so that means that God allows various trials into our lives, not to destroy us, but to rid us of our imperfections, to help us grow, to help us become holy to help us become more like Jesus. I'm sure everyone, many of us here, we could go around sharing stories about how some uh, trial happened in your life early on and you walked through it with the Lord and you came out and on the other end, you can say, I am so happy that happened because look at the way God changed my life. And you would say it was worth it. I'm sure we could share tons of stories like that this morning. This happens all the time if we're willing to, to see it. And I think this is what James is talking about when he says the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Another word for steadfast is endurance. The testing of your faith produces endurance. God uses the various trials in our lives not just to teach us like little life lessons, but to slowly build endurance and steadfastness into our character. And that means trials are not like riddles. They're not like these these riddles that we have to figure out the meaning to. That's not the way trials work for God. Rather, trials are something that God is actively using in your life right at this moment to build endurance. It's really similar to, to working out. Uh, a few years ago, it's been like four years ago now, my wife was trying this new workout video called Insanity, and she wanted me to try it with her, and I said, sure, I can, I can do that. Um, I'm kind of athletic, I play basketball a lot, so I was, I was good. About 15 minutes in, I had to stop. It was all over about 15 minutes. I couldn't do it because uh, I didn't have the endurance built up. Um, I needed to gain that endurance by putting my body through difficult situations like that over and over and over again. I mean, that's how you become stronger. The same is true in your faith. You build up your endurance as you face trials. You you learn to remain faithful to God as you persevere through difficulties. And then the next time a trial comes, you're better prepared to face it. And I think that's what James is trying to say in verse 4 there. Let steadfastness or endurance have its full effect. You have to trust that God is working in the midst of your trials. Just like working out, again, you have to believe that progress is being made, right? You work out, you believe that progress is being made, even if you can't see it right away. You don't give up when the results don't come in as fast as you like. You wait, you endure, you let the process have its full effect, and you keep focusing on the goal. Well, the same is true as we seek to find joy in our suffering. Our growth in this area is often slow, and sometimes we can't see it, but again, we have to trust that God is working in this process, and we have to set our sights on the goal. And James says that goal is that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the goal of enduring suffering and counting it all joy is perfection. That's the goal. Now, I don't think James expects us to actually gain, uh, attain perfection in this life, but I do believe that that is the goal. And and just because a goal can't be reached doesn't mean it's not a real goal. You know what I'm saying? I play basketball, and so my goal every time I step on the court is to make all the shots. My goal is to be 100%. That's never happened in my entire life that I can remember. Uh, But that doesn't mean it's still not my goal. So it is a real goal. Goal. And so that's what James is saying here. Trials will purify your faith in such a way that you will become more and more and more like your perfect Savior, like Jesus. That's the goal, even if you're never going to attain it in this life. So the first way God sees our trials is a time to purify our faith. The second way is that God sees our trials as a time to show us our need. Look at verses 5 through 8. Again, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So at the end of verse 4, it said that James, James said, The goal is that you would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. Now here at the start of verse 5, James says, if anyone does lack. It's almost like James understands how difficult it will be to count your trials as joy. He understands that sometimes, maybe a lot of times, we're going to fail in that. And we're going to be found lacking. But notice what in particular we are missing in these situations. We lack wisdom. And I believe that wisdom is just what we've been talking about. It's seeing things through God's eyes. A theologian named Luke Johnson, he calls it a fundamental reordering of reality. We need a reality shift where God is allowed to be God. You see, suffering has this way of kind of, of turning us in on ourselves. It can demand all of our attention and make it seem like nothing else matters. So suffering can kind of be like those, those blinders that they put on horses, you know? So that the horses can't look to the left or to the right. It can only see what's right in front of its face. Well, that's kind of what suffering can do to us. And in that state, you'll never be able to count your trials as joy. Because they're all consuming. They're all that you can see. And so what we need in these circumstances is wisdom from above we need God to pull off the blinders to lift us up so that we can see things as they really are and the crazy part is that James says to get that kind of wisdom all you have to do is ask all you have to do is ask God it's like when my daughters are in a crowd and they can't see something up ahead they come up to me they pull my hand and they say dad I can't see would you put me on your shoulders so that I could so that I can see what's going on and as a dad, I'm like, of course I'll do that. I'm delighted to do that. That makes me happy to do that. And that's what James here is saying is true about God as well. When we recognize our need and go to our Heavenly Father and say, Dad, I can't see. Can you lift me up? Can you put me on your shoulders so I can see things from your perspective? God is delighted to answer that prayer. Now, it's important to pause here and clarify that this wisdom that God gives isn't necessarily an answer to our why question. Seeing your trials from God's perspective doesn't mean you're always going to have a neat explanation for why they happen. Just think about Job, for instance. Job's never given an answer to his why question. But his encounter with God, when he meets God, his soul is so satisfied that he can leave his why question at God's feet. I've heard it said that Job's why question was swallowed up in a who question. He didn't need an answer anymore because God was with him. Pastor David Platt, he says it this way. In trials, God is saying, draw near to me and ask me to help you understand why this is happening and to give you perspective on what you're going through and to walk alongside you as the one who possesses all knowledge, eternal perspective, And perfect experience. So trials are like a stop sign put right in the middle of the busyness of our lives. They are a reminder that God is in control of the universe, that we need God, that we can't do life without Him. And so trials are also an invitation to draw near to God, to call out to Him, to walk with Him, and to be filled with the wisdom that He gives. If you look back at verse 5, it shows us how much God loves to give us this wisdom. How delighted he is to do so. God is generous, it says. He generously gives us this wisdom. God is not the Ebenezer Scrooge of heaven hoarding his goods and reluctant to share with us. God gives wholeheartedly and without reproach. That means God's not up in heaven checking to see, is he good enough? Is she good enough? Has she done enough to get my wisdom here today? God gives his wisdom without reference to our sin when we ask him in faith. Now that's an important point there, a little uh, last phrase there, when we ask him in faith. Because as James says in verse 6, we must ask for this wisdom in faith, not in doubting. Now typically when we think about doubt, we're thinking about the existence of God. I don't think that's what James is talking about here. I believe all Christians are going to struggle with uh, doubting the existence of God from time to time. I believe the doubt that James is referring to here is those who are unsure about whether they really want to follow Jesus or not. Essentially, these are those people whose faith itself is doubtful. Pastor Jeff Saltzman, he says it this way. This doubt here is like deciding between options, but wavering in your decision. The doubting person might feel compelled to go with God when it's tough, but they are not sure they want to walk with God when the storm clears. They are not certain whether they'd prefer to walk with God and grow as a Christian or walk with the world and indulge its pleasures. But they need help in the hardship, so they ask God. If they go to God just to get bailed out, They should not expect God to respond. The passage says God will not answer that prayer. So as we go through various trials in our lives, let us call out to God, not in a double-minded way, but in true faith, knowing that God is delighted to give us his wisdom. So God sees our trials as a time to purify our faith, to show us our need, and finally God sees our trials as a time to remind us of our home. See this in verses 9 through 12. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So, will, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So here we have this contrast between a rich man and a poor man, and at first glance it kind of seems, well, what does this have to do with counting trials as joy? What does this have to do with what came before it? Well, the rest of the book will go on to show, actually, that money is one of the greatest trials that you and I will face in this life. Whether you have a lot of it, or whether you don't have very much of it, both positions can draw your heart away from God. So for instance, if you're loaded, if you've got lots of money, you'll be tempted to be self-sufficient. To say, I don't need God. To be proud, to be mean, to be judgmental, to be greedy. But however, if you're poor, you don't have as much, then you, you'll be tempted to be envious, to be jealous, to be unhappy, uncontent, with what God has given you, and also greedy. And so James is reminding us not to evaluate ourselves by how much money we have in the bank, because money is only temporary. It's not going to last. It's fading away. So instead, James tells us, believers should set their eyes on that which will endure forever. And he tells us what that is in verse 12. Blesses is the man who remains steadfast under trial when he has stood the test of time. He will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So we remain steadfast under trials as we look forward to receiving the crown of life. Now, the crown of life might be different than you might might traditionally think about it. In the West, we usually think of crowns as like sitting on the head of a king or queen. That's probably not what James was thinking. He was probably more likely envisioning a wreath crown given to an athlete, a victorious athlete, one who had just endured the trial of competition and then came out on top and was crowned the, the champion in a sense. So the crown of life here, I believe, is another way of saying salvation or eternal life. That's what God will give to those who love him, to those who repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus to save them and those who remain faithful to him until the end. To these people, God will give the crown of life. And so what James is doing here is he's showing us how trials point us to our eternal home. When, when trials come into our lives, our first reaction shouldn't be to complain about them. We shouldn't try to numb them. We shouldn't try to avoid them. Instead, we should use trials as an opportunity to remember this place, all that's around us, an opportunity to remember this place is not your home. In this place, you're going to experience pain but not there. Here you're going to have tears, but not there. So don't waste your trials here and now. Let them remind you of your true heavenly home. Let them create in you a longing to be there, to be with your king. Because there you will no longer have to count it all joy, because all the various trials will be gone when we see our trials from God's perspective, when we see them as a time to purify our faith, to show us our need for him and to remind us of our true heavenly home, then we can begin to count them as joy. Ashley and I have a friend who can't watch intense movies. She says she's just too scared to watch these these really intense kind of movies. And so what she does is she goes online And she reads the plot ahead of time, which to me just sounds awful. Why would you ever read the plot line of a movie ahead of time? Why are you even watching it after you know the plot line? But she says uh, if she doesn't do that ahead of time, then when the drama starts to build up, she gets so nervous, gets so worked up that a lot of times she can't even finish the movie. She just has to stop, has to walk out of the room or push pause and leave it. But she says if she knows the end, if she reads about it ahead of time, then it actually allows her... To enjoy the movie instead of just being frightened by what could happen in the end. And you know, we may not get to read the plot line of our life, but we do get to know the script writer, right? We get to know who wrote the plot, and we know that he is good, we know that he loves us, and we know he is working all things to conform us to the image of his son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just admit to you that we need wisdom. We need your wisdom. We need your perspective on trials. Lord, would you grant us that? Would you help us to count it all joy when we encounter various trials in our lives? we ask this in Jesus' name.